Uh, Let's begin with prayer, shall we? Father, thank you for bringing us together again on this Lord's Day. I pray that you will bless our time together around around this prophecy. I pray that you will give us a sense of what you are saying, even in the midst of some rather confusing elements. And I pray that you will strengthen those who are here, Lord, to hear and the teacher as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, before I dive in, let's just stop for a few seconds. And do you have any questions that you want to bat around from Zechariah? Or do we need to catch up where we are? Um, Zechariah, weird book, second to the last prophetic book in the Bible. If you look there, for example, the first six verses of Zechariah are dealing with um, what seemed to be a recurrent theme in the prophets, and that is there's a call toward returning. But what's interesting about the call to return here is that it's on the far side of their judgment. So in other words, this is, this is um, not the kind of uh, time frame where we would think that this would be the primary call. The primary call to return or to repent was very much a pre-exile exilic reality. Um, so you have the exile which happened around 586 BC and it lasted for about 70 years in Babylon and then the Persians come along and give... Um, through an act of toleration, really, which, which provided, I think, a lot of political leverage for Persia. There was p- political ambition behind this, but rightly so, um, to allow people to go back to their homelands and to, to really reinstitute their particular cultures. So you need some money to rebuild a wall? Here's some money. You want to rebuild that temple? We encourage it. Um, and so you have uh, the Israelites going back to Jerusalem to begin that process again of rebuilding their infrastructure. But what happened upon arriving back into the land of Judah Judah was they knew the promises of God from prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah that on the far side of their judgment they would come into um, the grace of God in ways that the prophets described that really are over the top. Um, Double comfort to my people. Um, You will come back into the land flowing with milk and honey. So you have all these promises that are made to the people of God while they're in exile that when you come back I will restore your fortunes, kind of like what we, Psalm 126, but they come back into the land and what they realize is that doesn't seem to be working out like we thought. Um, In fact, we were, you can remember, for example, when the second temple was built, that there were those who had memory or at least recollection, personal recollections from their own ancestors about the first temple. And when the first and second temple was rebuilt, there were people who wept. That's not a, uh, that's not a great dedication party, by the way. You know, all this effort goes into building this structure, and there are people out in the you know, dedicatory service who are weeping because, well, uh, we've heard about the first temple, and this doesn't come close. Uh, this, this isn't as nice as the first temple, and it's not as significant as the first temple. Um, so you're feeling, I think, in this post-exilic period under the Persian rule, um, all the tensions that are really are present throughout the Psalms and throughout the Proverbs as well um, about what it means to live life in the promises of God when we're in those moments where the promises should be fulfilled and they're not being fulfilled the ways in which we thought. Now, that, that's actually worth reflecting together for you know, our whole time. Um, because you do know something, don't you? I know, I know you assume this, but uh, if you watch enough Christian TV you know, about 1 or 2 in the morning, which I, I don't do that, but, um, but if you do watch Christian TV at 1 or 2 in the morning, there's a lot of talk about biblical prophecy and how biblical prophecy works. Um, people get you know, really excited about the breeding of red heifers or the fact that there's, there are plans to rebuild the temple. 
And just by the way, if, if, if that ever happens in the Middle East, and they try to rebuild the temple where the Dome of the Rock is now, it's World War III. I mean, it's going to be a disaster. You know, so you hear these kinds of things that are talked about, and frankly, with, I think, some well-meaning Christians, but not very politically astute, and not, I don't think very, well, I need to be careful I'll say this, but not very biblically um, astute either, who, who feel that the restoration of the temple in that particular way is the ways in which God will make good on his prophecies. And a lot of money is funded toward this. You want to talk about a lot of money. A lot of money is funded toward this. Now, um, what's interesting to me about some of these issues with biblical prophecy is what we often forget is that, and, and this, is, this to me is sort of principle 101 about Bible prophecy. God um, gets to fulfill his prophecies in the way in which he wants to. Um, and that's not always understood except for in retrospect. For example, let's go back to the Old Testament prophets. You have this pro- these prophetic announcements about God's future salvation. And you realize this about um, Jewish eschatology, or Jewish, a Jewish doctrine of the end times. Is there a, there's a chalk line over here, isn't there? I, I, I did this for the Advent cl- I mean the... Uh, oh, do you think I can erase that? I better not. I'm get mad at somebody. Is there a... Well, I'll do it right here. Um, so here, here is... Here's, uh, Don James, sorry, you've seen this already. But here is a um, here's Jewish eschatology, right? Old age, new age. Um, how many of you grew up in a world where your eschatological scheme, your blueprint of prophecy, was way more complicated than that? I know this kind of schema, right? So you have the cross, then you have the age of the church, then you have the rapture, right, where people get raptured up. Is this ringing a bell with anybody? <laughs> Left behind Tim LaHaye, right? Um, I, I, I mentioned this before, but I, I, I don't fly well. I joke with people that I'm a Calvinist on the ground, but I'm an Arminian at 30,000 feet. You know, I just I don't get nervous up there. Um, and I saw a stewardess one time on a flight from Tampa to Dallas, I think, who was uh, reading Tim LaHaye's Left Behind. I'm like, not the rapture right now, please. Um, so you go up, and then, and then you have a, a seven-and-a-half-year period. Lots of debates in this scheme about where God's wrath is revealed. Is it revealed in the middle? I mean, there are books written on this. I kid you not. Are you a pre-wrath, pre-trib? A post-wrath, pre- I mean, all this stuff uh, you kind of have worked out. Then, Jesus comes back at the end of this period to establish his thousand-year reign. And then at the end of the, I've run out of room. Then, then at the end of the thousand-year reign, the devil's loosed for a little bit. Don't, I never have gotten that part. But he said, go have some fun for a little while. I, I, don't, I just don't get it. Now, but thousand-year, he's released for a little bit. And then you have uh, the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come after it. That is a complicated system. And frankly, lest we make fun of it, the ability of people to read the scriptures in an overly sort of literal wooden way and come to this schema, I think it's quite an achievement, frankly. I mean, it's an enormous, I, I hear it and my brain just begins sort of, you, you got what from what verse? You actually got that from that? That is impressive. I mean, I, that's an interpretive achievement. Um, when I think, you know, Jewish eschatology was very much sort of old age, new age, Right? That's it. 
And what happens in Jesus, and what's so surprising in Jesus, is you have, in the middle of time, something happens that ancient Israel didn't think would happen until the end of time. So when Jesus comes, and then you have the age of the resurrection of the dead, now we live in the overlap of the ages, old age and new age. So you want to know what age you live in now? You live in the age of the resurrection of the dead, and you live in the age of anticipation of the resurrection of the dead. That's, the, that's where we live. We live in that particular tension. A lot of times you'll read this, if you read any New Testament works, I'm sure you've all seen these terms before, but it's often referred to as the already and the not yet. When did Jesus establish his kingdom? He established his kingdom in his death and his resurrection. And he continues the kingdom work through the life of his church, even now, and we await for the consummation of that kingdom later. So that we can say things like, your kingdom is here. You are reigning and ruling. And we can at the same time say, your kingdom come, your will be done. So we live within that particular tension. And by the way, this I'm off script, but by the way, I do think that that particular schema right there of eschatology is very helpful for me. And I think it's the proper categories to come to terms with what Paul understands when he's talking about the internal struggles of the Christian life. Um, old man, new man. Old man, new man language, I think, is Paul speaking into the dynamic that we live even in our Christian existence, both as those who are members of the new age, my citizenship is already there, and also those who are still marked by this age who need, um, who, who need to be reminded that you will be a sinner to the end of the, day, end of the days. So this schema here, to my mind, is an eschatological, end times understanding of what Martin Luther was talking about with you are righteous and you are a sinner until the end. That is that particular eschatological schema. Now with that said, I do think it's important to recognize as well, and I'd be happy to bat this around with you all, but I also think it's important to recognize that that also means that God can fulfill his prophecies in ways that are surprising. I'm, I'm, I'm sympathetic, as I think you should be, and I should be, um, to the fact that there were many in the first century world who just didn't get it. Now, of course, we know that there, there were those who were, like Simeon, um, Hannah, you know, who were waiting for these moments. Um, and now my nuke dimitis, you know, my eyes have seen and I can, I can depart. Um, so you had those who were waiting, you had the Magi who show up, but there were many, many people who were like, this, this, isn't, this is not going according to plan. Why? Well, because at the end of the age, if, you, if you've read the prophets, at the end of the age, then all the nations are subdued. I mean, when, when Judas Iscariot, who, by the way, to my mind, is a fascinating figure in the Gospels, when Judas Iscariot says, let's go to Jerusalem and die together, and he's speaking in zealot language, I don't think we should be surprised that that's the way in which they're thinking. You can't really be the Messiah and still allow there to be a Roman rule. Those two just don't comport. And that's why I think a lot of people rejected Jesus' message, because he brought salvation, but he brought spiritual salvation, but they're like, spiritual salvation, great. I mean, we, we tend to think as, you know, 20th century, post-Billy Graham, evangelical kind of people. Um, and, I, you know, I don't think they were necessarily in the first century world looking for that kind of experience. They're like, we want God's kingdom to be here. His saving promises are about the kingdom of God. And what's Jesus' first message that he's preaching? Repent, because the kingdom of God is here. 
And everyone who expected the kingdom of God to come among humanity and displace the powers that set themselves up over against God and his kingdom, they were waiting with bated breath, a bit like Jonah outside the city saying, all right, it's fireworks time. And even at his death, they were waiting for it. Is that Elijah? Did he just call out to Elijah? Is he about to do a sign and a work and a power and a wonder? Because people expected for that particular scheme of eschatology to work itself out. And I'm sympathetic to that. I'm sympathetic to the fact that they should, that they, they wanted it to, ha- they understood it to happen in a particular way. Yeah, uh, Jane. No, no, go ahead. When the Old Testament talks about the day of the Lord, yeah. The day of the Lord, and this is a significant theme in the Minor Prophets, the day of the Lord has an elasticity to it in the Prophets. Um, I mean, for example, Joel can talk about the day of the Lord in Joel as being something that occurred with this locust plague. So he can refer to various moments of judgment as a day of the Lord, and he can refer to various moments of salvation as a day of the Lord as well. The day of the Lord theme in the Minor Prophets is actually rather complicated to get your mind around. And what I think you find with the Day of the Lord themes in the Minor Prophets is they are proleptically anticipating a final, consummated Day of the Lord. But in that final consummation, it will be good news for some, and it's going to be bad news for others. And I think that's the tension that you feel in the Minor Prophets as well. The Day of the Lord is a day of promise, but it's also a day, ask, ask the Ninevites in Nahum, the Day of the Lord's not, you know, it's not a happy day. Sis? Those who died in faith, are they in heaven? Is there a heaven? Uh, Are they in heaven waiting for us? Do we expect to see them when we die? What's the deal there? Yeah, and are you talking about that specifically from an Old Testament perspective or just in a a, a theological, from my perspective? and it's a funny thing, isn't it, that that question right there has been debated. It was a real medieval debate, wasn't it? So you had even some who were Reformed thinkers who believed in soul sleep, for example. You know, that when you expel in your physical body, that your soul goes into a moment of sleep or remission, awaiting for the bodily resurrection of the dead. Now, just because of other biblical texts and because I think the host of the Christian tradition affirms something different than that, I do believe that when our bodies physically die, that our souls are brought into whatever heaven is. And whatever you conceive of it, it's probably not that. I mean, I don't know how to say, you know, <laughs> you know whatever. But the presence of the Lord, I mean, if you want a beautiful poetic description of it, I don't think you can do better than Dante. When Dante starts moving um, in the Paradiso closer and closer to that music that he's never heard before, I, you know, we're getting into where language strains after what the reality is. And I can appreciate what Dante achieved in that. Um, but I would say, you know, our bodies are there. But this is where, because I think your question is so important. It taps into so many areas. How we view the world, how we, how we value creation, how we, what we think about our bodies. I mean, the pastoral implications of your question, I think, are significant. Why? Because our bodies dying... And our souls going to be with Jesus, right, in the, in the blessed unity of God's own being, whatever that means, and it blows our minds. But that's not it. In other words, it's not, that's not the final destination. And there's a lot of hymnody, that, well-meaning hymnody, 
that came out of the 19th century and a certain kind of pietism that talked about, I can't wait to get away from my body so that I can just be free of my body and free of this world and go on Jordan's, you know, over Jordan's stormy banks and be on the other side and be disembodied. And I would say that the Bible doesn't know anything about a disembodied future existence. That our souls are always meant to be linked to our bodies. So I do believe in an intermittent period where we have a consciousness of some sort, a soulish consciousness, but that consciousness even there is awaiting the resurrection of our bodies because our future existence is a bodily, corporal existence. And I think that's really important because that begins to tell us what we think about this world. Um, you've heard things about even a Christian's view on ecology, for example. Well, why would you... Have you heard this before? I've heard this before. Why, 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 why polish brass in the Titanic? It's like, what a waste of time. Why? This whole thing's going to burn up anyway. So cut some trees down and have a good time, right? Now, you know, I'm not necessarily kind of going to a sort of pure sort of tree hugger view on this, but the point is, this world will be recreated. It's a new heavens and a new earth. It's physical. I was in Montreat, North Carolina last week, and I was just thinking, well, you're not going to have to work real hard at this place. This is about this is close. This is great. There's the beauty of this earth that we appreciate. God looked at it, Genesis chapter 1, and he said, it is good. It is good. And this is a big question that I think Christians have to wrestle with. And I would be curious, I mean, it'd be, a, it'd be a great conference to go to. Where is Jesus? He's with the Father in his throne room, wherever that is. They are two separate entities. Yes, but they're also, you, my, my son says this, I love, I love my Franklin, my, my five-year-old. He's like, I said, Franklin, what do you think about God? And he said, I really like God, and I really like Jesus. And he's like, are they the same? I'm like, Yes, but they're not. I mean, that's we live in that sort of tension. Yeah, that's right. So there's a distinction between the two, the two, but there's also a shared sharing in essence. But the point is, where Jesus is, and I, you remember the Russian cosmonaut who went out and said, "I'm looking for God, and He's not here." Right? It's, we tend to think of it spatially, kind of out there, more and more, especially with the way in which physics helps us think about the way the complexity of our world. I do tend to think of heaven as really the kind of flip side of our reality. It's not kind of out there spatially. It's a flip side of our current existence, which I think means heaven's closer than we realize. You know, it's not just sort of, where is it? Is it, is it on the expanse of the universe that's ever expanding in an, in an infinitely forward-moving, you know, the, the, world's, the universe is expanding and it's going faster as it does so. Einstein was right on that. Uh, well, is God out there somewhere on the edges of that? Well, I think it's more that he's, it's a flip side of our reality and that means he's very close. I, I don't. I'm, I'm no. We're, we're straining at something here. Um, but sorry. Um, but the, but the point of this is how we view the world in creation. I really do believe that God's redemption of humanity serves creation, and it's not creation just serving redemption. In other words, we are redeemed because God is going to reorder His world, His creation. I mean, that's why in Romans eight and Colossians one. As surprising as this is, you even have the trees and the rocks yearning for God to come back and to set things right. And I don't think Jesus was just being coy when he said, if you won't praise me, these rocks will. I don't think he was just kind of rhetorically giving them a kick in the knee. I think Jesus was saying, you know what? These rocks really will. 
In other words, the creation itself is linked to the Creator in such a way that it too has been impacted by the reality of sin. Just look at the Middle East and you'll know it, right? Or anywhere. This world has been impacted by sin. And let's think about it in a, in a more sort of brass tax way. In Syria, and Palestine, and the Sudan, and these places, right, where there's dirt and earth and land that has a creator, those places are yearning for things to be made right again. I mentioned this, and if this was in here, did I say about talk about the Syrians a couple weeks ago? If I did, I'm, I'm going to say it again. You know, I can't, I don't know how you feel about this, I can't download it all. You know, I've got, you know, I hate this is going to sound very selfish, and it is, but you know, we've, I've got kids, and we're running around, and I can't, I can't think about the Syrian refugee crisis, it's too big, yeah, it's huge. Well, my kids, you know, manipulated me in, that's the right term, I'll say it, into staying for an Advent volleyball game. I didn't want to do it. So I'm staying for the volleyball game, I'm sitting in the bleachers, I'm not real happy about being there, but I happen to have a magazine, so I opened up the magazine that I subscribed to, and I was reading this detailed account of the Syrian refugee crisis. And what's happening is they're spilling over the borders into Turkey, and they don't want them. And then as they're spilling into Eastern Europe, and they don't want them. And then they're going into Germany, and they're starting to be a little bit more flexible on this. But they don't really, they're not real giddy about it either. And then, and then, and then finally, the, you know, England says, we'll take this many. And there's a picture, and it looks like a scene, I don't know what's, it looks like a scene from Fiddler on the Roof or the Holocaust, where this, these whole communities of people are walking down this cart path in the middle, in the, in the, in the either Turkey or Eastern Europe. And I'm thinking, oh my Lord, you read that, you know what you think? Dear God, please make your creation right again. Restore this world again, because it's broken. Um, so I think our view of redemption, it's certainly about me not going to hell, right? It's certainly that. I mean, I believe that, or whatever that means. It's certainly about me and my salvation. But the Bible pushes us to look way bigger than that and to have a cosmological view about what God's atoning work does to set this world back again because the way in which he talks about the future is not heaven escaping from this world. The way in which he talks about the future is new heavens, new earth, a new created order that's physical and corporal and our bodies are raised. And think about the pastoral implications of this. Have you all seen this happen before? And I'm sure you have. In a well-meaning attempt to encourage someone in a moment of death, because I, we were just, I mentioned, many of you know that we were at a funeral recently and it was open casket at the viewing, which is its own kind of terror, frankly. Um, and you're there and we see our friend in the casket and from a distance, he resembles who we knew. And you get closer and you're like, I don't even know who that person is. And I know that person well. Have you had that disorienting moment? And uh, in a well-meaning pastoral attempt to help people navigate that, I've heard it a lot. I'm sure you'd have as well. People will say things like, just remember, that's not them. It's just their body. That's not them. It's just their shell. It's just their body. That's not true. They are, they are waiting for that body. I, see, I, say, I don't know how else to describe it, but they are waiting for that body to be raised. And I don't know how God does it, but you know, if he made the world, he can figure it out. To bring, together his, you know, to bring together these broken down atoms that are now part of the dust, he will gather them in his own way, just like he made Adam out of the dust. He will gather them in his own way and reconstitute our bodies and bring our souls back to it. And that's what we hope for. I, I, I find that... In other words, you know, this helps kids too. 
we're going to be fishing, and you know, this is going to be we're going to be living in a world. There'd be fishing. I mean, we say those, and, and again, I'm, I'm pressing beyond our imagination. I don't know all that we're going to be doing, but it's going to be a, it's going to be an existence where our relationship with God is perfectly ordered, and our relationship with one another is perfectly ordered as well, in a created world that is perfect without any fallen aspect to it at all. That sounds pretty good. I mean, I don't know how. I mean, I don't think we can do justice poetically to how wonderful that will be, right? No, but with all that said, you got me on a big old rabbit trail there, sis. It was a good one, though. Well, with all that said, your soul is sleep. I don't think that. I don't think our souls sleep. But there are those who do, and you know, and if they find out that their soul's not sleeping, I think they'll be okay about that. No, it's like, oh, I thought I'd be sleeping, but I'm I'm conscious. And the other side of that is, and if I'm not conscious and I'm asleep, I think I'll, I'm sure I'll be okay with that too. Um, you know, but no, so the point is, whatever the intermittent period is, that's the abnormality. So I think we tend to think of that as the final destination. But that's the abnormality, because our souls and our bodies aren't together. But the future resurrection is when the soul and the body are brought together. All right, let's press on. We've got to move on. Well, thank you, and, and we we'll, can we'll talk more. Or ask Jerry. Jerry will give you all the answers on that. Um, I threw you under the bus there, Jerry. Um, all right, chapter 2 here. Let's look at this. Do I have time? Let's pray. <laughs> I think we're done. Um, well, we're, we'll be done. I'm going to just tell you what the second vision is, and then we'll, we'll, talk, we'll delve into it. The, 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 the second vision, I love this one. This is your homework assignment for next week. Read, next week. read Zechariah 2 and 3. So there's a man who's measuring Jerusalem. And the angel of the Lord is there, and he... He says, do you see that man measuring Jerusalem? He says, he needs to stop. And so he runs to this man and he says, stop measuring the walls of Jerusalem. Why? Well, they're getting ready to rebuild the wall. or whatever. And he says, don't do it. Because the inhabitants that are going to come into this land will be so numerous that the borders are going to have to explode. Right? And not just that, and then again, this is a sort of ecological thing that I find fascinating in the Bible. And there's going to be lots of animals too. So, I mean, I'm going to put so many animals and so many people into this city coming back who are going to enjoy the restoration of God's city that the borders are going to have to expand. I mean, I think this is very much within the logic of Isaiah chapter 54, verse 1. Rejoice, O barren woman, and you who do not have any offspring, because the husbandless woman will have more children than the husbanded woman. And then the next verse goes on to say, and the borders of your tent are going to explode. So barren Zion, in chapter 54, barren Zion is now having so many children that they just have to rethink the whole thing. And in Isaiah 54, I'm stealing my thunder from tomorrow night, so you guys are going to hear this again, I'm afraid. But Isaiah 54, what's so wonderful about this is, where does Zion get her children? There's no answer to that. But back in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10, you see the servant who is in his suffering, dying on behalf of others, and from his suffering he sees his seed, his offspring. So who are the offspring that come into Zion's tent and make it explode beyond its normal borders? The offspring are the servant's offspring, his seed. This is very much attached to what we expect and what we see happening in the, in, the, in the book of Acts, and starting in Judea, 
and then Samaria. And then the, uh, you see those concentric circles? Jerusalem's still the center of the world. But from Judea to Samaria and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. What do you see happening? You see Isaiah 54.1. You see the second vision of Zechariah being worked out from the standpoint of the person and work of Jesus. The borders don't work anymore. They're bigger than that. And they're so big and they're so expansive that we can't believe the fact that God has made good on his promises, but he's done so in a way that has absolutely um, astounded us. So next time we'll look quickly at the, we're going to go through a lot next time. So next time we're going to do the, the, the vision of Joshua the high priest, which is beautiful. Um, we'll do the flying scroll. That's fun. That's what it's coming back for. Sounds like a, sounds like a dish at the uh, Red Pearl, doesn't it? The flying scroll. Um, so we'll, we'll come back and we'll, and we'll do that together and, uh, and it'll be great. Lord, thank you. You're kind. Your mercies are new. There is so much about the future that we don't know. And, and Lord, we feel kind of caught in the fact that we really would kind of like to know more. But at the same time, we really don't want to know. So, Lord, I, I pray that you will give us the confidence to know that you make good on your promises and you make good on your promises in the way in which you see fit to do that. And let us be okay with that, Lord. Let us be open to the way in which you fulfill your word and your promises in our midst, knowing that all of it is shaped by what you have shown us in your Son. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.